Chapter Nineteen, Part Two, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, Never Again, Part Two. The second point about which something must be said is the unexpected cold met by Scott on the barrier, which was the immediate cause of the disaster. No one in the world would have expected the temperatures and surfaces which we encountered at this time of the year. It is clear that these circumstances came on very suddenly, and our wreck is certainly due to this sudden advent of severe weather, which does not seem to have any satisfactory cause. They came down the glacier in plus temperatures, nor was there anything abnormal for more than a week after they got on to the barrier. Then there came a big drop to a minus thirty-seven degree minimum on the night of February twenty-sixth. It is significant that the sun began to dip below the southern horizon at midnight about this time. "'There is no doubt the middle of the barrier is a pretty awful locality,' wrote Scott. Simpson, in his meteorological report, has little doubt that the temperatures met by the polar party were abnormal. The records "'clearly bring to light the possibility of great cold at an extremely early period in the year, within a comparatively few miles of an open sea,' where the temperatures were over forty degrees higher. It is quite impossible to believe that normally there is a difference of nearly forty degrees in March between McMurdo Sound and the south of the barrier. The temperatures recorded by other sledge parties in March 1912, and those recorded at Cape Evans from additional evidence in Simpson's opinion that the temperatures experienced by Scott were not such as might be expected during normal autumn weather. Simpson's explanation is based upon the observations made in McMurdo Sound by sending up balloons with self-recording instruments attached. These showed that very rapid radiation takes place from the snow surface in winter, which cools the air in the immediate neighbourhood. A cold layer of air is thus formed near the ground, which may be many degrees colder than the air above it. It becomes, as it were, colder than it ought to be. This, however, can only happen during an absence of wind, when a wind blows, the cold layer is swept away, the air is mixed, and the temperature rises. The absence of wind from the south noted by Scott was, in Simpson's opinion, the cause of the low temperatures met by Scott. The temperature was reduced ten degrees below normal at Cape Evans, and perhaps twenty degrees where Scott was. The third question is that of food. It is this point which is most important to future explorers. It is a fact that the polar party failed to make their distance because they became weak, and that they became weak although they were eating their full ration or more than their full ration of food, save for a few days when they went short on the way down the Beardmore Glacier. The first man to weaken was the biggest and heaviest man in the expedition, the man whom we had least expected to fail. The rations were of two kinds. The barrier, B, ration, was that which was used on the barrier during the outward journey towards the pole. The summit, S, ration, was the result of our experiments on the winter journey. I expect it is the best ration which has been used to date, and consisted of biscuits, 16, pemmican, 12, butter, 2, cocoa, 0.57, sugar, 3, and tea, 0.86 ounces. Total, 34.43 ounces daily per man. The twelve men who went forward started this S ration at the foot of the Beardmore, and it was this ration which was left in all depots to see them home. It was much more satisfying than the barrier ration, and men 
could not have eaten so much when leading ponies or driving dogs in the early stages of summer barrier sledging, but man-hauling is a different business altogether from leading ponies or driving dogs. It is calculated that the body requires certain proportions of fat, carbohydrates and proteins to do certain work under certain conditions. But just what the absolute quantities are is not ascertained. The work of the polar party was laborious. The temperatures, the most important of the conditions, varied from comparative warmth up and down the glacier to an average of about minus twenty degrees in the rarefied air of the plateau. The temperatures met by them on their return over the barrier were not really low for more than a week, and then there came quite commonly minus thirties during the day, with a further drop to minus forties at night, when for a time the sun was below the horizon. These temperatures, which are not very terrible to men who are fresh and whose clothing is new, were ghastly to these men, who had striven night and day, almost ceaselessly, for four months, on, as I maintain, insufficient food. Did these temperatures kill them? Undoubtedly the low temperatures caused their death, inasmuch as they would have lived had the temperatures remained high. But Evans would not have lived. He died before the low temperatures occurred. What killed Evans, and why did the other men weaken, as they did, though they were eating full rations and more? weaken so much that in the end they starved to death. I have always had a doubt whether the weather conditions were sufficient to cause the tragedy. These men on full rations were supposed to be eating food of sufficient value to enable them to do the work they were doing, under the conditions which they actually met until the end of February, without loss of strength. They had more than their full rations, but the conditions in March were much worse than they imagined to be possible. When three survivors out of the five pitched their last camp, they were in a terrible state. After the war I found that Atkinson had come to wonder much as I, but he had gone farther, for he had the values of our rations worked out by a chemical expert according to the latest knowledge and standards. I may add that, being in command after Scott's death, he increased the ration for the next year's sledging, so I suppose he had already come to the conclusion that the previous ration was not sufficient. The following are some of the data for which I am indebted to him. The whole subject will be investigated by him and the results published in a more detailed form. According to the most modern standards, the food requirements for laborious work at a temperature of zero Fahrenheit, which is a fair barrier average temperature to take, are 7,714 calories to produce 10,069 foot-tons of work. The actual barrier ration which we used would generate 4,003 calories, equivalent to 5,331 foot-tons of work. Similar requirements for laborious work at minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a high average plateau temperature, are 8,500 calories to produce 11,094 foot-tons of work. The actual summit ration would generate 4,889 calories, equivalent to 6,608 foot-tons of work. These requirements are calculated for total absorption of all foodstuffs, but in practice, by visual proof, this does not take place. This is especially noticeable in the case of fats, a quantity of which were digested neither by men, ponies, nor dogs. Several things go to prove that our ration was not enough. In the first case, we were probably not as fit as we seemed after long sledge journeys. There is no doubt that when sledging men developed an automaticity of certain muscles at the expense of other muscles. For instance, a sledge could be hauled all day at the expense of the arms, and we had little power to lift weights at the end of several months of sledging. 
In relation to this I would add that when the relief ship arrived in February 1912, four of us were at Cape Evans, but just arrived from three months of the polar journey. The land party, we four among them, were turned on to sledge stores ashore. This in practice meant twenty miles every day, dragging a sledge, a good deal of humping heavy cases from five o'clock in the morning to very late at night, with uncertain meals and no rests. I can remember now how hard that work was to myself, and I expect to those others who had been away sledging. The ship's party sledged only every other day, because they were not used to it. This was extremely bad organisation, and in view of the possibility that some of the men might be required for further sledging in the autumn, just silly. Again, there is the experience of the man-hauling parties of the polar journey. There was, you may remember, a man-hauling party on the way to the Beardmore Glacier. They travelled with a light sledge, but they lost weight on the barrier ration. It is significant that they picked up condition when they started the summit ration, especially Lashley. The polar party and the two returning parties who were on the summit ration from the foot of the Beardmore until the end of their journeys weakened, in Atkinson's opinion, more than they should have done had their ration been sufficient. The first return party covered approximately 1,100 statute miles. At the end of their journey their pulling muscles were all right, but Atkinson, who led the party, considers that they were at least 70% weaker in other muscles. They all lost a great deal of weight, though they had the best conditions of the three returning parties, and the temperatures met by them averaged well over zero. The second return party faced much worse conditions. They were only three men, and one of the three was so sick that for 120 miles he could not pull, and for 90 miles he had to be dragged on the sledge. The average temperature approximated zero. They were extremely exhausted. Scott makes constant reference to the increasing hunger of the polar party. It is clear that the food did not compensate for the conditions which were met in increasing severity. Yet they were eating rather more than their full ration a considerable part of the time. It has to be considered that the temperatures met by them averaged far below minus ten degrees, that they did not absorb all their food, that increased heat was wanted, not only for energy to do extra work caused by bad surfaces and contrary winds, but also to heat their bodies, and to thaw out their clothing and sleeping bags. I believe it to be clear that the rations used by us must not only be increased by future expeditions, but coordinated in different proportions of fats, proteins and carbohydrates. Taking into consideration the fact that our bodies were not digesting the amount of fats we had provided, Atkinson suggests that it is useless to increase the fats at the expense of the protein and carbohydrates. He recommends that fats should total about five ounces daily. The digestion of carbohydrates is easy and complete, and though that of protein is more complicated, there are plenty of the necessary digestive ferments. The ration should be increased by equal amounts of protein and carbohydrates. Both should be provided in as dry and pure a form as possible. There is no censure attached to this criticism. Our ration was probably the best which had been used, but more is known now than was known then. We are all out to try and get these things right for the future. Campbell reached Hut Point only five days after we left it with the dog teams. A characteristic note left to greet us on our return regretted they were too late to take part in the search journey. If I had lived through ten months such as those men had just endured, wild horses would not have dragged me out sledging again, but they were keen to get some useful work done in the time which remained until the ship arrived. We had the polar records. 
Campbell and his men, unaided, had not only survived their terrible winter, but had sledged down the coast after it. We ourselves, faced by a difficult alternative, had fallen on our feet. We never hoped for more than this. We seldom hoped for so much. I wanted a series of a daily penguin embryos from the rookery at Cape Royds, but had not expected an opportunity of getting them because I was away sledging during the summer months. Now the chance had come. Atkinson wanted to work on parasites at the same place, and others to survey. But the real job was an ascent of Erebus, the active volcano which rose from our doors to some 13,400 feet in height. A party of Shackleton's men under Professor David went up it in March, and managed to haul a sledge up to 5,800 feet, from which point they had to portage their gear. A year before this, Debenham, with the help of a telescope, selected a route by which they could haul a sledge up to 9,000 feet. There proved to be no great difficulty about it. It was just a matter of legs and breath. They were a cheery company, part singing in the evenings and working hard all day. It was an uneventful trip, Debenham said, and very harmonious. The best trip he had down there. Both Debenham and Dickerson suffered from mountain sickness, however, and they were the two smokers. The clearness of the air was marked. At five thousand feet they could plainly see Mount Melbourne and Cape Jones, between two and three hundred miles away, and several uncharted mountains over to the west, but they were unable to plot them accurately because they could get direction rays from one point only. The sound itself was covered by cloud most of the time, but Beaufort Island and Franklin Island were clear. Unlike David's party, they could see no signs whatever of volcanic action on Mount Bird, which is almost entirely covered with ice, on which it was to be expected that some mark might be left. At nine thousand feet Terror looked very imposing, but Mount Bird and Terra Nova were insignificant and uninteresting. The valley between the old crater and the slopes of the second crater greatly impressed them, and they found a fine little crevassed glacier on it. Both Priestley and Debenham are of opinion that it is possible to get to Terra by this valley, and that there are no crevassed areas or impossible slopes on the way. All the same, it would probably be more sensible to go from Cape Crozier. At a point about 9,000 feet up, Priestley, Gran, Abbott and Hooper started to make the ascent to the active crater on December 10th. They packed the tent, poles, bags, in a cooker and cooking gear, with four days' provisions, and reached the second crater at about 11,500 feet to be hung up by cloud all the next day. At these altitudes the temperature varied between minus 10 degrees and minus 30 degrees, although at sea level simultaneously they were around about freezing point. By 1 a.m. on the 12th the conditions were good, clear, with a southerly wind blowing the steam away from the summit. The party got away as soon as possible, and reached the lip of the active crater in a few hours. Looking down, they were unable to see the bottom, for it was full of steam. The sides sloped at a steep angle for some five hundred feet, when they became sheer precipices. The opening appeared to be about fourteen thousand paces round. The top is mostly pumice, but there is also a lot of kenyte, much the same as at sea level. The old crater was mostly kenyte, proving that this is the oldest rock of the island. Felspar crystals must be continually thrown out, for they were lying about on the top of the snow. I have one nearly three and a half inches long. Two men went back to the camp, for one had a frostbitten foot. This left Priestley and Gran, who tried to boil the hypsometer, but failed owing to the wind, which was variable, and enveloped them from time to time in steam and sulphur vapour. 
they left a record on a cairn and started to return but when they had got five hundred feet down priestley found that he had left a tin of exposed films on the top instead of the record gran said he would go back and change it he had reached the top when there was a loud explosion large blocks of pumice were hurled out with a big smoke cloud probably a big bubble had burst gran was in the middle of it heard it gurgle before it burst saw blocks of pumiceous lava in shape like the halves of volcanic bombs with bunches of long drawn-out hair like shreds of glass in their interior this was pelle's hair gran was a bit sick from sulphur dioxide fumes afterwards they reached cape royds on the sixteenth the very successful trip taking fifteen days meanwhile shackleton's old hut was very pleasant at this time of year in winter it was a bit too draughty with bright sunlight a lop on the sea which splashed and gurgled under the ice foot the beautiful mountains all around us and the penguins nesting at our door this was better than the beardmore glacier where we had expected to be at this date what then must it have been to the six men who were just returned from the very gates of hell and the food truly shackleton's men must have fed like turkey cocks from all the delicacies here boiled chicken kidneys mushroom ginger garibaldi biscuits soups of all kinds it is a splendid change best of all are the fresh buttered skewers eggs which we make for breakfast in fact life is bearable with all that has been unknown so long at last cleared up and our anxieties for campbell's party laid at rest end of chapter nineteen part two